This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot org. Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. Chapter 10 in which Passepartout is only too glad to get off with the loss of his shoe. Everybody knows that the great reverse triangle of the land, with its base in the north and its apex in the south, which is called India, embezzles 1,400,000 square miles, upon which is spread unequally a population of 180 million of souls. The British crown exercises a real and depositic domain over the larger portion of this vast country, and has a government general stationed at Calcutta governors, at Madras, Bombay, and in Belgium, and a lieutenant governor at Arja. But British India, properly so-called, only embraces 700,000 square miles, a population of from 100 to 110 millions of inhabitants. A considerable portion of India is still free from British authority, and there are certain fortuitous rehas in the interior who are absolutely independent. The celebrated East India Company was all-powerful from 1756 when the English first gained a foothold on the spot where now stands the city of Madras, down to the time of the great Sepoy insurrection. It gradually angst province after province, purchasing them off the native chiefs whom it seldom paid and appointed the governor-general and his subordinates civil and military. But the East India Company has now passed away, leaving the British possessions in India directly under the control of the crown. The aspects of the country, as well as the manners and destructions of race, is daily changing. Formerly, one was obliged to travel in India by the old cumbrous method of going on foot or on horseback in palanquins or unwieldy coaches. Now fasting boats ply on the Indus and the Ganges, and a great railway with branch lines joining the main line at many points on its route traverse the peninsula from Bombay to Calcutta in three days. This railway does not run in a direct line across India. The distance between Bombay and Calcutta, as the bird flies, is only from 1,000 to 1,100 miles. But the deflections of the road increase this distance by more than a third. The general route of the Great Indian Peninsula Railway is as follows. Leaving Bombay, it passes through Salkete, crossing to the continent opposite Tenna, goes over the chain of western Ghats, runs through northeast as far as Burhampur, skirts an nearly independent 
territory of Bunclair ascends to Alabad, turns thence eastward, meeting the Genghis at Banners, thus departs from the river a little, and descending southeastward by Birdvin and French town of Chandigarh, has its tremendous at Calcutta. The passengers of the Mongolia went ashore at half past four p.m. At exactly eight, the train would start for Calcutta. Mr. Fogg, after bidding goodbye to his whist partners, left the steamer, gave his servant several errands to do, urged it upon him to be at the station promptly at eight, and with his regular step, which beat to the second, like an astronomical clock, directed his steps to the passport office. As for the wonders of Bombay, its famous city hall, its splendid library, its forts and docks, its bazaars, Moscow's synagogues, its American churches, and the noble pagoda on Malabar Hill, with its two polygonal towers. He cared not a straw to see them. He would not deign to examine even the masterpiece of Elephanta, or the mysterious Hognia concealed southeast from the docks, or those fine remains of Buddhist architecture, the Conhieri Grotos of the island of Salcutta. Having transacted his business at the passport office, Phileas Fogg repaired quietly to the railway station where he ordered dinner. Among the dishes served up to him, the landlord especially recommended a certain giblet of native rabbit, on which he prided himself. Mr. Fogg accordingly tasted the dish, but despite its spiced sauce, found it far from palatable. He rang for the landlord, and on his appearance said, fixing his clear eyes upon him, Is this rabbit, sir? Yes, my lord, the rogue bully replied, Rabbit from the jungles. And this rabbit did not know when he was killed. Mew, my lord, what a rabbit mew, I swear to you. Be so good, landlord, as not to swear, but remember this. Cats were formerly considered in India as sacred animals. That was a good time. For the cats, my lord? Perhaps for the travelers as well. After which Mr. Fogg quietly continued his dinner. Fix had gone on shore shortly after Mr. Fogg, and his first destination was the headquarters of Bombay Police. He made himself known as a London detective told his business at Bombay, and the position of affairs relative to the supposed robber, and nervously asked if a warrant had arrived from London. It had not reached the office. Indeed, there had not yet been time for it to arrive. Fix was surely disappointed, and tried to obtain an order of arrest from the director of Bombay Police. This the director refused as the matter concerned the London office, which alone could legally deliver the warrant. 
Fix did not insist, and was fain to resign himself to await the arrival of the important document. But he was determined not to lose sight of the mysterious rogue as long as he stayed in Bombay. He did not doubt for a moment any more than Passepartout that Phileas Fogg would remain there at least until it was time for a warrant to arrive. Passepartout, however, had no sooner heard his master's orders on leaving the Mongolia than he saw at once that they were to leave Bombay as they had done Suez and Paris, and that the journey would be extended at least as far as Calcutta and perhaps beyond that place. He began to ask himself if this bet that Mr. Fogg talked about was not really in good earnest, and whether his fate was not in truth forcing him, despite his love of repose, around the world in eighty days. Having purchased the usual quota of shirts and shoes, he took a leisurely promenade about the streets where crowds of people of many nationalities, Europeans, Parisians, with pointed caps, Banyeds with round turbans, Sindhus with square bonnets, Parisies with black mitres, and long-robed Armenies were collected. It happens to be the day of, of a Parisi festival. These descendants of the sect of Zoroaster, the most thrifty, civilized, intelligent, and ostrich of the East Indians, among whom are contacted the richest native merchants of Bombay, were celebrating a sort of religion's carnival with processions and shows in the midst of which India dancing girls clothed in rose-colored guez loped up with gold and silver, danced airily, but with perfect modesty to the sound of violas and the clanging of tambourines. It is needless to say that Passepartout watched these circus ceremonies with staring eyes and gaping mouth, and that his countenance was that of the greenest booby imaginable. Unhappily for his master, as well as himself, his curiosity drew him unconsciously farther off than he intended to go, at least having seen the Paris Carnival wind away in the distance, he was turning his steps towards the station, when he happened to espy the splendid pagoda on Malabar Hill, and was seized with an irresistible desire to see its interior. He was quite ignorant that it is forbidden to Christians to enter certain Indian temples, and that even the faithful must not go in without first leaving their shoes outside the door. It must be said that here that the wise policy of the British government severally punishes a disregard of the practices of the native religions. Passepartout, however, thinking no harm, went in like a simple tourist, and was soon lost in admiration of the splendid Brahmin ornamentation, which everywhere met his eyes when of a sudden he found himself sprawling on the sacred flagging. 
He looked up to behold three enraged priests, who forthwith fell upon him, tore off his shoes, and begun to beat him with loud, savage exclamations. The agile Frenchman was soon upon his feet again, and lost no time in knocking down two of his long-gowed adversaries, which his fists and vigorously application of his toes. Then, rushing out of the pagoda as fast as his legs could carry him, he soon escaped the third priest by mangling with the crowd in the streets. <clears throat> At five minutes before eight, Passepartout, headless, shoeless, and having in the squapple lost his package of shirts and shoes, rushed breathlessly into the station. Fix who had followed Mr. Fogg to the station and saw that he was really going to leave Bombay, was there upon the platform. He had resolved to follow the supposed robber to Calcutta, and further if necessary. Passepartout did not observe the detective who stood in an obscure corner, but Fix heard him relate his adventures in a few words to Mr. Fogg. I hope that this will not happen again, said Phileas Fogg coldly as he got into the train. Poor Passepartout, quite crestfallen, followed his master without a word. Fick was on the point of entering another carriage when an idea struck him which induced him to alter his plans. No, I'll stay, muttered he. An offense has been committed on Indian soil. I've got my man. Just then, the locomotive gave a sharp screech, and the train passed out into the darkness of the night. End of chapter 10 This has been a TBOL3 production.